You can look in Luke 8. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who, women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, married called Magdalene, from whom seven demons hadn't gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathered, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, and it choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, Who? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when the word, they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. But as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a lamp or puts it under a bed but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has shall be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of the Lord and do it. This is the word of the Lord. Soon after the events of Luke 7, Jesus launches into another round of itinerant ministry. If you look there in Luke 8, verse 1, he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Galilee was only 70 by 40 miles, and it would just take a couple days to traverse it. However, visiting all 204 towns could take some time. And Jesus' ministry was not just preaching, but his preaching was accompanied by great demonstrations of the kingdom of God. 
Remember back to last week where in Luke 7, verse 22, it says that Jesus, he, he told the followers of John the Baptist, he says, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. You see, this type of kingdom demonstration would probably explain why the crowds are getting larger and larger. And as the crowds increase, the the types of followers became even more diverse. Luke 8 verse 4 reads, when a great crowd was gathering and the people from town after town came to him. I want you to also notice that the 12, his 12 closest followers, probably the apostles, and then a selection of disciples were at the core of these crowds. I, I think it's also just kind of interesting and fun to look at and notice Luke's ever kind treatment to women. He just brings our attention, three women who, like we learned last week, were loved much and who in turn loved much. These women had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities and were eager to follow and serve Jesus. In fact, two of the mentioned women, Mary and Joanna, they, they continued to minister with Jesus all through his, his earthly ministry. In fact, we see them accompanying Jesus all the way to the cross. And then later, we actually see them at the, on the day of his resurrection, they're at his tomb. These women were all in. Uh, they were not just for the show. They weren't just trying to see the tricks. They, they, in fact, they gave of their wealth. They gave of their resources to advance this gospel ministry of Jesus. And on this occasion, this crowd had gotten extremely large. Some commentators, they think that maybe this is the largest group yet to gather around Jesus. In fact, in a parallel passage in Mark 1, verse 1, it says that Jesus Christ actually had to get into a boat and just push off just a little bit so he's able to teach all those that had gathered. I mean, they came from every corner of society. I mean, the, the, the upper crust from Tiberias, the religious rulers, the laborers, and the landowners, they're all curious. I mean, just kind of curious. What's going on with this Jesus? Some actually wanted to hear the words, but everyone was open to see a miracle. And while much the audience had probably not given much thought to their internal motivations of why they were following Jesus, they probably, some of them, had no clue why they had even gathered in and were mixed up with all these people in the field and outside of the cities, but Jesus is going to help them find out real quick. They may not know why they're there, but Jesus knows, and he's going to help them. And he begins his teaching with a parable. And this parable was designed to reveal the condition of the listener's hearts. In fact, the, the, the point of his parable is quite simple. It's, it's, it's going to communicate that the way you hear and, and what you do with the word of God, the way you hear the word and what you do with the word of God reveals the condition of your heart. The way you hear and do the word of God reveals the condition of your heart. And so we see this parable that Jesus begins to speak to the crowd and then he speaks it again to his disciples. We see it in Luke 8, 5 through 8 and then 11 through 5. Traditionally, people would call this the parable of the sower. 
However, the parable's emphasis on the soil's receptivity is, is actually, the emphasis is on the soil's receptivity to the seed. The sower and the seed are constant throughout the parable, whereas as the story unfolds, the soil is different and produces differing effects. While Luke had already given a, a couple other parables so far in the Gospel of Luke, these were much smaller, and this is the most robust parable up to date. And actually, this parable is key to understanding all other parables. In fact, in talking about this parable, Mark, when he said in Mark 4, verse 13, he says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So what's a parable? A parable is a story that's not necessarily to inform us nor entertain us. Rather, the parable seeks to help people understand an important truth or a moral lesson. In fact, the prefix, para, it, it means alongside, or, or an example could be a paramedic, where, where somebody comes alongside a physician who is going to attend to somebody in great need. R.C. Sproul, he said this, that a parable is a story thrown alongside some other teaching for a point of comparison. Charles Swindoll, he wrote about parables. He said, the speaker uses common everyday circumstances to communicate unfamiliar things, even supernatural things. The images appear simple and obvious, but the truths they, they convey are neither. We could say that parables are fictional stories that educate us about the real world. To properly understand a parable, one must first interpret it correctly and then discern how to apply it. So, so when you come to a parable, there, there's an aspect of it where it's a story, but you have to interpret it. What's, what's the intention? What's the, what's the writer's intention for that parable? What's the interpretation? But you can't just stop there. You actually have to discern. So then how then should I apply it to life? The parable that we find here is actually quite unique because not only does Jesus teach the parable to the crowd, but then he also gives the exact interpretation of the parable to his disciples. And promptly after hearing Jesus teach about the sower broadcasting the seed to four different types of soils, his disciples ask him in verse 9, they're like, so, so what does this mean? And Jesus lays it out. In verse 11 through 15, he says, the seed is the word of God. And then he explains the four different soils. And he says, these are illustrations of the hearts of those that hear the word of God. Some hearts are hard, some are shallow, some are distracted, others are fertile. The, the different types of soil refer to the different types of receptivity that different people can have to the proclamation of the gospel. So he just starts off this parable. And we see, first of all, that the first type of soil is a hard soil. Uh, in contrast to many of us, um, the initial recipients of this parable would immediately connect with the farming aspect of this story. Uh, there's a there's a group of us, about 20 of us here from Gospel Grace that are going to go to Israel in about 10 days. And I'm starting to get a little bit pumped. In fact, I was kind of looking through my pictures that I have from going to Israel just to see if there was some that I could show of this, just to kind of say how, how you would just kind of, you'd feel it. But the, the recipients of this parable from Jesus, I mean, they just got it. 
I mean, er everywhere you'd go in first century uh, 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 Palestine, you would see people broadcasting seeds. You'd see people plowing up dirt. You'd see people attending to the crops. There was, there was so much sustenance type living that it was so commonplace. This, this, isn't a, this isn't a story that would fall on deaf ears. They would just get it. They would understand. Yes, there are people who are constantly sowing seed. In fact, they, uh, when he talked about the method, I mean, here goes this farmer, and he's just broadcast, throwing out his seed in a broadcast method. He's just throwing it out. Um, it wasn't some little willy-nilly thing. I mean, that's how they did it. They'd throw it out, and then, then they would plow it up. They wouldn't plow a straight furrow and then push each seed in, in every computerized, GPS-coordinated spot. Just throw the seed, and the seed would fall in different places. And in verse 5, we see that some of the seed has fallen on the hardened dirt of a pathway. You, you see, these fields are everywhere, and so the paths would cut right through some of these fields. And, and as the sower went out to sow the seed, some fell on the path, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. The seed was not intentionally thrown on hardened soil, but... Instead, this packed soil was just this path, and the seeds are there, and soon those exposed eat seeds are devoured by the birds. Look in verse 12, where Jesus then explains the hard soil. He says it represents those who have heard the word of God, but have allowed the devil to come and take the word from their hearts. Their, their hearts are so unreceptive they, they don't notice or they don't care if the word is even taken. I mean, th th this is kind of like the dead cowboy in the old black and white western. You, you, you know, he got in some gunfight and then they got to they gotta elongate it and he's crawling and he's, he's trying to get to the water and there it is and, and he's crawling and then it's a mirage and the birds are circling overhead and then he dies and then the birds peck him to death and eat his flesh. Is that graphic enough? You see, when he's alive, he bats away those vultures, but he's dead and he doesn't even care. You see, that's what's being communicated. That hard soil represents somebody who's dead to the word of God. They, they don't even care about it. The ultimate effect of the hardness of the heart is serious. He goes on in verse 11, and how does he end that text? He says, they don't believe and they aren't saved. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 4.4 in the case of the God of this world to blind the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. It is sad to come across somebody who is dead to the word of God. It is sad to think how the word goes out and maybe there's a torrential rain of God's word and yet the heart is so hard that the water just floods right past and there is no effect on the heart. You see, the way you hear and do the word of God reveals the condition of your heart. But then in verse six, he talks about the second type of soil. Some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. In verse 6, we see that some of the seed falls on a shallow soil layer. It's just like a, a little bit of dirt that maybe because of the, during the rainy season, just kind of dirt kind of washed over the limestone shelf so that any seed that goes out finds some 
initial nutrients, but it goes down and then when the rains are no longer available, these plants die because this little plant was not able to send its roots deep and find the nutrients that it needed when the times got tough. As a teenager, I used to have a landscaping business, and often a customer would ask me to replace a dead plant or a shrub. And in my brain, I was thinking I need to hook up the truck and, I mean, get the truck and hook up a chain and, you know, maybe drag this shrub out. And yet, many times I'd go over to this shrub or this plant, and I could just grab it and pull it right out of the ground. And sometimes it'd come up, and the bulb, you know, the little, you know, the, the Home Depot plant that comes in a pot. And it's just kind of that little, that little round, whatever that plug is, whatever you call that. I'm sure they've got a name for that. But you'd pull it up and you'd realize the customer had never scored that little root bulb and the roots never were broken up so that they could reach out into the dirt so that when times got tough, they were able to find the nutrients that they need. And that's exactly what, how he explains it in Luke 8, verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But they have no root. They believe for a while. And in time of testing, they fall away. Here in verse 13, Jesus is referring to those who hear the word. They, they have an initial response on the surface. It's immediate. It's emotional. There's tears. There's some form of ecstatic joy. But in reality, this one has not realistically counted the cost of discipleship. And when the normal trials of life, of Christ, the normal trials of Christianity roll in, this wannabe disciple fades away. Can I just tell you that being a Christian comes with trials? To, to be a follower of Jesus Christ involves a cross. Paul, he, he said this, and not, that, we, not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because the, God's love has been poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I, I need you to know something. For you to grow as a Christian, you have to have hardships. You, you, there must be trials. There must be circumstances that cause you to sort through the feelings and the facts of what really is faith. For this one, the opposition, it could have been as simple as cutting statements. I've known enough folks right here in Salt Lake City who've come to know Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. They, they put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. They've said the words, right? They, they've walked the aisle or they've, they've talked with somebody after a service, but then they go home. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then the opposition begins to flow. You're always going to that church. You're, you're just so different. You used to be so fun. What's gotten into you? If you leave, if you leave our church, I'll leave you. If you're into religion, I'm not into you. This testing could come from the opposition of loved ones. This testing could come through unmet expectations. There are people that will come to a church service and they'll make some form of a profession of faith because they have some expectation of what Christianity will provide. They're trying out Christianity to see if they get the better job, the better, the better future, that something works out with a spouse. They have some expectation and when it's not met, they drift away from God. The way you hear and do the word of God reveals the condition of your heart. 
You see the hard soil, we, we see the stony soil, but then the, the thorny soil, in verse nine, the, the third soil is infested with weeds and thorny briars. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, and with it choked it. That's what it said in verse seven. The thirsty briars soak up all the water. The weeds are kind of like the tares of Matthew 13. The wheat amongst the tares, they imitate the wheat. But then the tares, they, they kind of shoot up a little bit past the wheat, maybe by a foot or two, and they outgrow the wheat so that now they rob the wheat of all of the sunshine. And so now what happens is these other plants are deprived of water and sun, and they're choked out. Verse 14 tells us that this represents somebody who's not totally satisfied in Christ alone. As for what fell among the thorns, verse 14 they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Their fruit does not mature. They were going along with the idea of Christianity because it got them what they wanted. However, their affection for Christ was eventually choked out by some other concern, possessions, or pleasures. Initially, it looked like there was life, but the lack of spiritual fruit reveals that there never was life. Jesus mentions three specific types of thorns. He says the cares of this life. We, we live in a fearful world, don't we? There are so many things to be worried about. I mean, I see some of you with a pen. It could be that as we're just talking right here, you should just list out your one, two, three fears. What, what are they? What, what's the anxiety that's in your heart? Is it a relational, a, 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 a relational anxiety? Is it a, a family anxiety? Is it a job anxiety? I mean, what, what is it that's rattling you? I was prepping this this last week and I was doing a discipleship phone call and this person happens to be going to college and they just were, they just were like, I said, what's on your heart? And they just started to cry because one of their good friends is just kind of falling away from the faith and they haven't really talked to this friend for three years and they just feel so bad and they don't know, is it my fault that I've not talked to them? I mean, they're, they're just crying over this friend. And then they say, and I've got a study for all these tests and, and, then, and I've got this issue. And then they start bringing up some other issues. I mean, there were so many cares, so many things of anxiety. I finally interrupted and I said, do you realize that you cannot take care of everything? And on the fly, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this Zoom meeting. I pull up the BBC News. And I just start saying words like Ukraine. Cancer, storms, mass shootings. You cannot address everything because you are not God. And yet there are some that they get so wrapped up with fear and anxiety and all the things around them that unfortunately those items become thorny briars that wrap around their heart and strangle life. The riches of this world. Possessions in and of themselves are not damning. I mean, we know that because the wealthy woman in the first three verses of this chapter, they use their resources to accelerate Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And yet we know stories in the Bible and illustrations from our own life where people 
should have taken heed the words of Paul when he said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and in many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I mean, how many of you know somebody local, somebody, a Utah person who's so consumed with what they have, so consumed with their house, their car, their cash, that they have left Jesus somewhere else. The pleasures of life. He, he says these thorns, the cares, the riches, the pleasures, God's created pleasure, but even a good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes the driving thing. When a person allows their life decisions to be made on the basis of whether or not something's fun or whether or not something brings pleasure, their own spiritual life will be ensnared and choked our pleasure craves society is skilled at drowning out the word of God. We are in a, a, a very emotionally agitated society. Our culture is addicted to all things not God. There's so many little hits, so many little dopamine hits that we get from texts and updates and thumbs ups and stars and whistles and bands and whatever else. So I was just thinking about all the things that distract us. I, I mean, we could come up with quite a list, couldn't we? But I, I think that in our culture, I, I think one of the most effective ways that our present world right now is pushing out the voice of God to the peripheral is through, through all things social. I mean, how many different social media apps rob us of our ability to focus on Christ? Has there ever been something so powerful and so addictive that social media platforms have this remarkable ability to mix and deliver a deadly cocktail of anxiety, materialism, and immorality? I, I know I'm, I'm stumbling down a rabbit trail, but I do want to ask you a couple questions. I just want you to think sometime this week where you scrolled through your social media feed and I just want to ask you a question. Do you typically find yourself more at rest or more anxious when you spend 30 minutes on social media? Do you consider yourself, yourself more content or discontent after browsing through everybody else's stuff? Does social media typically push you towards purity or impurity. You see, beware of anything that chokes out the word of God. The cares of life, the riches of life, the pleasures of life. You see, the way you hear and do the word of God reveals the condition of your heart. And so we see these three soils, and one is so hard, nothing goes in. The next one, there's a, there's a sprout that, that comes up, but then, it's then, then it really has not the moisture or the energy to live. And then the third one actually produces just a little bit before the thorns and the briars choke it out, and there is no fruit, but then there is some good soil. Soil. And in verse 8, the seed falls on a good soil. Some fell on good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When the good seed falls on good soil, it yields a bumper crop. How encouraging it must be for the harvester to produce a, a, a crop that has a hundred percent return. This would be an abnormally, abnormally large, abundant harvest. Verse 15. As for that good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast with an honest and good heart, bear fruit with patience. 
Philip Ryken, he said, a good heart is not hardened by sin that Satan would snatch away the good seed of God's word. It is not so shallow that it withers in the heat of persecution. It is not so distracted that it gets choked off by life's troubles and pleasures. Instead, it stays rooted in the word of God, and as a result, it bears a bountiful harvest. Look at this good soil. Look at this good heart that you see that the soil that is good, they, they have a heart that holds on to God's word. It says that they intentionally hear, read, hide, meditate, obey the word of God. It's, it's like Psalm 119, verse 60. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. They hold on to the word of God, but then they have a heart that's honest. They intentionally reject Satan's lies and hear God's word as truth. They say with David, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. They have a heart that's good because the abundant, gracious work of God, it just produces an, a heart that wants to hear and obey the word of God. And they have a heart that's patient. You see, because the powerful nature of God's word, you can be patient in enduring the trials of life. And when you do, you will bear fruit. So what's the point? What's the point of our text? Obviously, this is not intended to share first century farming techniques. Furthermore, the, the point of this passage is not actually to help us understand that potentially more people re will reject God's word than accept it. The, the point of this is, is not just even a, a triage. It's not just like, okay, so that one was bad and that one's worse and, and then, then that one's really bad and I want to be this good one. No, he, he's driving home the point. The way you hear and do the word of God reveals the condition of your heart. And so there's a warning. There's a warning to those that don't hear God's word, but then Jesus is calling out those who are truly his. I mean, just picture, you've got all these, maybe a thousand people, and Jesus is speaking to this crowd, and he's calling out those that are truly his, and he's exhorting them to continue to live as a true, as a true disciple is supposed to live. You see, you see his propositional statement. Look at verse eight. At the end of this, the first round of speaking to everyone about this parable, he says, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Look at the last phrase of, of our last verse, verse 21. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word and do it. This brings us to really three points of application for true followers of Christ. Remember what we stated earlier in the message. I, I, I said to understand a parable, one must first interpret it. What, what, it was, what was said, what does that mean? But then have the wisdom to discern how to apply it. So application number one. We are to be thankful for the work of God in our lives. You see, I wonder if the disciples were taken back by the different intensity level when, when Jesus called out. I mean, he's just giving this, this parable, and then it says that he, he calls it out. It's like he gives the parable, and then he, it's like he almost shouts out to all of these other people. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And quite frankly, looking at the parable at face value, I could really understand why the disciples did not know what it meant. I mean, how many of you have ever had a friend that just gives random facts, just random facts, they walk up and they just say, hey, I just wanted you to know Mississippi is the longest river in the North America. And you're like, well, thank you very much. That's great. What's your point? 
And if we were standing there and Jesus tells us about these different types of soil, we'd be kind of looking over there going, yeah, it's true. That one does need some more moisture. And then the disciples, they say, so what you mean, Jesus? Thankfully, we have about 2,000 years of church history and an explicit explanation of Jesus just a few verses later. And so Jesus is going to go ahead and explain his parable, but before he does, he actually communicates to his disciple, disciples that really to understand a parable, you need spiritual discernment. In verse 10, it says, to you, to you it has been given <clears throat> to, to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. You, you see, the disciples, they heard that story along with all the other people, and they're not quite sure what to think of it. And Jesus looks at them and says, you're different. I, I've been working in your heart. You're different. You have been graced to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is communicating to his, his disciples that they've already been graced enough to begin to comprehend the already but not yet aspects of the kingdom of God. You, you see, these disciples were already starting to understand the Father sent Jesus not to set up some earthly kingdom, but he sent Jesus to be the savior of the world. He was setting up a kingdom in the hearts of his followers that would produce a different manner of living and create ways that, uh, that, that they could enjoy the benefits of this new covenant that would benefit all of mankind. You see, these disciples, they were actually tracking with Jesus and were closer to Jesus and were beginning to understand what really Jesus was all about. In contrast, he says right there in verse 10, but for others... These words I just said, for others, they hear this story and it's just a parable. They don't even have the appetite to come up to me and say, what do you mean by that? These, it's almost like the, the flood of the information of Jesus is just going right past them. And then he says, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And what Jesus does is he actually quotes Isaiah 6 verse 9. And he's connecting the present circumstance back to an era where the children of Israel would not hear God. In fact, this, the people of God in the time of Isaiah, their hearts have become so hardened that when, when Isaiah, when he sees Jesus, uh, excuse me, when he sees God, the king in the temple, he, he just says, woe is me. And God sends a coal from off the altar, puts it on his lips. He says, your iniquity is taken away. And Isaiah, he pops up from this encounter with God and he says, Lord, here am I, send me. And then, then God says, I want you go, to go and I want you to go teach a people who have no in inclination to turn to you. You see, sadly, God's revelation sometimes only hardens people's hearts. Some people's inclination is so anti-God that when you begin to talk to them about how they can have a relationship with God, the rebellion only gets more intense. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody that was basically telling you that they want nothing to do with God and you began to plead with them, but any of your pleading only produced a hardness of life? And so, we ought to be thankful that God has worked in our life 
In fact, if you have ears to hear, if you actually have a heart to understand, if you would have been with the disciples, I mean, maybe, maybe you just have like a, just a sliver of, of really a, a fertile soil, just a sliver that would just cause just enough for that little, that little seed just to germinate just a little bit. And you say, Jesus, I, I, I don't see it totally, but I, I, I think I'm understanding that, that I need to go towards you. I, I don't totally get it, but there's some little, little bit in my heart where I want you. That's a good thing. Because I was once lost in darkest night. Yet I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. And now all I know is. You see, the first application for those of us hearing this story of hearts that are hard and hearts that are strangled and good soil is that if for any reason you have a heart that wants to go after God, then we are to be thankful for the work of God. But the second application is we're to participate in the mission of God. You see, he goes through the story. He tells the group, and then the, he regroups, and he tells his disciples, and, and he walks right through the, the four soils with the, the, the disciples. And then in verse 16, there's a micro parable. And verse 16 and 17 is actually quite difficult to interpret. You see, right in the middle, after telling this parable, he tells another parable. How many parables does it take to tell a parable? No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it and with a jar puts it under a bed. Well, good point. Yeah, I, I don't want to do that. I, yeah, I'm not going to light a candle and stick it under my bed. That's a good idea. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those that enter in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to the light. Some would say that the lamp in verse 16 is Jesus Christ. It's found in John 8. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, others would say that this verse suggests that the disciples are to be the light of the world. This would be found in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand that gives light in all the house. In the same way, let your light so shine for others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father which is in heaven. I actually think that both of these perspectives inform what's going on in this circumstance. If we go down to verse 17, we see that everything that is hidden and every secret of the heart will at the end of the age be manifested for all to see. So, so by the way, each of these applications, there's, there's, there's somewhat of a blessing for those that are hearing the word of God, and there's something of a judgment for those that aren't. And in this setting, he's, he's basically saying, hey, at the end of the age, when Jesus comes back, when, when I come back the second time, when I'm here... You, you see, what's going to happen is, is anything secret will be known. There will be nothing hidden. But on a positive note, if, if the Spirit of God has truly worked in the heart of a disciple, 
And if they truly have good soil and the word of God has gone in their heart, guess what? There will be fruit as found back in verse 15. And if there's good fruit, why wait for the fruit of righteousness to be revealed at the end of the age? It's like, it's like why wait for everyone to see that, yeah, you really were good soil. It's kind of like when there's no-brainers. It's like if, if the God has really worked in your heart and there really is good fruit, then why not display it so that others can see and glorify the Father? Let your works be seen so they can glorify the water. It would be absurd to light a lamp and hide it under the bed, and it would be a waste for a genuine Christian who has the light of Jesus in them to hide or bury that work of God. Since the work is not their own, the reflection of Christ should be put on a lampstand so that anyone that's outside in darkness can come into the house where there is light. And so the first application is that I, I should just be thankful that God has worked in my heart, but the second application is that I should participate in the mission of God, but then the third application is we must be careful with what we do with the word of God. Take care then how you hear, verse 18. For to you, the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. This happens often with the parables. Remember remember the parable of the one going out with the talents and the one just hid it and did nothing with it and it was taken away and given to those that had more, to those that were actually going to invest it. This application comes explicitly with both a a blessing and a warning, and so therefore the disciple must be careful. You you see, if the Christian disciple is faithful to hear, understand, obey the word of God, then guess what? More of God's word will be made available to him. If we eat the word, we find that our appetite for the word will only grow. As we begin to understand the whole counsel of God, there's going to be certain passages that are just going to start popping out. Can I, can I tell you through my Bible reading this year, I have so enjoyed Jeremiah and Isaiah like no other time in my life. I think it's this because I think there's some truths in other sections of the word that are just starting to make sense to me. And all of a sudden now reading Jeremiah and Isaiah in light of what I've read over here. And you know what? I find a greater appetite for the Lord. Who here knows what I'm talking about? You see, when you begin to see the whole redemptive arc, when you see the the whole idea of creation and fall and and the work of Jesus and one day the restoration, you begin to understand different pieces and now those other portions of scripture are actually something that is encouraging and what was dull is now bright and what was just merely with no color is like technicolor old school 4K stuff. What about you? Could it be that you used to have an appetite for God's word, but you don't because you've been avoiding God's word? Do you know when you avoid God's word, it, it's harder to get the appetite going? I, I, I'm getting to the age where the metabolism is just slowing down. I mean, I can exercise, exercise, exercise. I can count my calories and I can lose like a half pound. But if I dare look at the plate of brownies, I mean, I don't even have to taste them. (laughs) Bloop. (laughs) You know what's amazing? Is how quickly we can lose our love for Jesus. 
how quickly the word can become a chore, how difficult it is to listen to that sermon, how difficult it can become to read that passage, how difficult it can be to listen to somebody just exegete the scriptures. You see, this is what he's saying. Take care, care how you he, hear, because when you are hearing and you're, you've got that heart, oh, it just, it's like the, the water flow of uh, the waterfall of God's blessing and the waterfall of God's word. It just goes in, it goes in, and you want more and you want more and you want more, but you stop and soon life's cares and riches begin to choke out the ability to enjoy God. Muscular atrophy sets in and when we fail to exercise, mental dullness, dullness comes to those that do not actively think. Spiritual regression comes to those that do not pursue God. It's a warning. And to illustrate this, what he does is he, he, he places it. Luke, now in crafting this presentation, this story, makes sure that we understand that in verse 19, then his mother and his brothers came to him. And, and he's just trying to explain how important it is that the word of God is primary to us and they can't reach him because of the crowd. And then somebody, somebody's like, maybe the word's being passed up. Your mom and your brothers, they want to talk to you. And Jesus responds in a manner that, that on the surface seems a little bit callous, but it's not because we know other points of scripture and how Jesus interacted with, with his mother. But he, he says this, he says, my mother and my brothers are actually those that hear the word of God and do it. He's not being disparaging or unkind towards his family. He's simply trying to communicate the importance of hearing and doing the word of God and the incredible opportunity for all who will hear and do the word of God, how the opportunity is for us to enjoy family intimacy with Jesus. You want to walk with Jesus? You want to talk with Jesus? You want to enjoy Jesus? Can, can I just tell you, just because you see it's an apple pie doesn't mean that you taste the apple pie. Just because you know facts about Jesus does not mean that you know Jesus. Just because you could get up and teach or preach doesn't mean that in the deepest section of your soul you have an intimate relationship with the Lord. Gospel grace. We don't want to be just a, a set of cold religious people that show up to a building on Sunday. We want to be a people who know and love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. We want a relationship with God that is not just mental, but it drips into the heart and it stirs our affections. We live in a culture that there's way too much religion. We need a people who are intoxicated with God. It's the greatest apologetic Utah can have. People who really know and walk with Jesus. So what kind of listener are you? What kind of hearer are you? How many of you would say, Will, I can see. Well, Will, I, I believe I truly am a true follower of Jesus Christ. But I can see little aspects of all of those three first soils in my own heart. I can see areas 
of hardness. I can see areas of really entanglement. I can see areas of shallowness. Who just with uplifted hands say, well, quite frankly, if I was just to be honest about the status of my own soul, I see some aspects of some of the bad soil in my own heart. Would you lift your hand? So people, let's do this. Let's take a good season to pray. Let's not just rush out of here today. Let's take two, three, four minutes and let's just say, God, till up the soil. God, break up the hard heart. God, help me love you. I'd like us to do this. Rather than just be quiet and let our brain drift away somewhere, I'd like you to pray with one or two people around you.